Monsters are real. Ghosts are real too. They live inside us and sometimes they win. Stephen King. Welcome to the Two Roads Travel podcast. Two sisters, two journeys, one purpose. Changing perceptions and judgments around alcohol misuse. The impact on the drinker, family and society as a whole. Too many struggle alone, so please remember us when you chat to someone that may need help. Remember, we also run a closed Facebook group for Daughters of Alcoholics, so for those that want some more individual support, please go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Daughters of Alcoholics. In episode 19, which goes live on the 10th of May, you'll be lucky enough to have an episode with yours truly, Paula and I will be talking about what it's like to be the daughter of an alcoholic and what the similarities and differences are. We also talk about our new rule abider and rule breaker quiz. Which one are you? Welcome to episode 18 of the Two Roads Travelled podcast. Today, Joe and Paula are talking with Natasha Chant about mental health, alcohol misuse and dual diagnosis. It can be hard to make sure that alcoholics with mental health issues get the support they need. Having a dual diagnosis makes treatment plans necessarily more complex, meaning that there is a higher risk of failing to treat people effectively. Which comes first, the mental health issue or the alcohol misuse? Natasha Chant is a registered mental health nurse. She's worked in inpatient and community settings and currently works in a mental health drop-in centre in Dorset. It's an out-of-hours self-referral centre for anyone to access support for their own mental health or carers to access support for themselves. Natasha is committed to providing a service for everyone in a self-defined crisis, having her own experience of growing up with adults who were mentally ill. She now wants to empower others to feel that they have some control over how they can move forward from their crisis. Natasha's wealth of experience makes her the perfect person to interview about dual diagnosis and how alcoholism and mental health problems are so often linked. Hi everybody, it's Jo here. Hello, Paula as well. Um, And... Today we are going to be talking to the lovely Natasha, who I met, um, funnily enough, at a networking event. And um, it was actually a really good networking event. I haven't actually been since, but it was really good. I really liked it. Um, And um, she was there selling some children's books and stuff, which was really good. And then I got to understand that she works in mental health and also knows about alcohol and I was like oh my god this is the perfect person to be talking to us on the podcast because this is a topic that Paula and I are very interested in and the whole dual diagnosis and the connection between mental health and alcohol misuse um, there's so much to talk about so um, yeah so I think um, today's session is going to be really interesting so I'm really looking forward to finding out more from a professional that knows more than <laughs> Hiya, Paula here. Um, yeah, I too am um, quite intrigued with this, uh, this interview we're going to do because um, where I work, it goes hand in hand a lot of the time. And uh, a lot of the time we are helping them uh, deal with their addiction um, before, that they c- before they can access help from the mental health team. Um, but sometimes they are using to... Um, 
cope with their mental health. So it's a really, really tricky area, and I and I can't wait to learn a little bit more. So yeah. off we go. Yeah. So um, Natasha, if you just want to introduce yourself, kind of maybe give us some uh, information about your experience and what you do in your role, that would be fab. Uh, so I'm Natasha. I'm a mental health nurse. I've been qualified for six years now. Um, currently, I work in a drop-in centre in uh, Bournemouth Town Centre, and that is part um, like an access mental health. So it's for anybody. You don't need a referral from a GP or or anyone. You can just literally drop by and get support from even a mental health practitioner. So somebody with clinical experience or somebody with lived experience. Um, so we we see anybody and everybody, a wide variety of people. Um, quite often, people that have got real diagnosis stop by, and sometimes it might be their carers that actually stop by, or people that are supporting them that are wanting support for themselves mm -hmm. about how they maintain their well-being whilst they're caring for somebody who isn't quite ready to make the changes themselves. Mm. I'm actually interested in finding out. Could you, for those of you that of us that don't know what do you mean when you say clinical when somebody's clinical so somebody with a qualification so uh, most of us are mental health nurses but we have it, it doesn't have to be a nurse that works with us it can be a social worker it can be a therapist it can be an occupational therapist it, it can be anything um you know with a with a degree of some description right okay um, in mental health yeah okay um so i guess one of the first questions i have and i guess we want to get some clarity on for those that might not know is what is dual diagnosis so there's a, a, a couple of different ways that we look at dual diagnosis so we look at it with somebody with a primary diagnosis so a serious enduring mental illness with secondary substance misuse as part of that the other way to look at it is somebody with predominantly substance misuse and then a kind of a psychiatric condition that develops alongside that um, and then the other way um, we kind of look at people who have had a trauma and the effects of that trauma give you both substance um, kind of misuse, manage the trauma and then the, the mental health alongside that as part of their experience. Hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. So would you say then it's more about, well, from what I've just heard, it sounds like it's what, one thing comes before the other. So like either the drinks coming first, then the mental health gets developed or the mental health first, then the drink comes second sort of thing. Yeah, they can't, it's difficult to find out what, what comes first, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, I understand it's hard. So, but there's like from what you've, how you've just described it in my mind, it just, that's how it sort of sounded <laughs> like one of the, you know, it's either someone that's got a mental health issue and then they develop a drink problem or they've already got a drink problem and then they develop a mental health issue because of it yeah hmm. um and i guess that's when we look in secondary care at treating somebody so more often than not we will be treating somebody with a primary diagnosis that needs support from secondary services hmm. um and they will then quite often you know have their own coping mechanisms within that for whatever reason um and then the other flip side is you people that are probably more difficult to assess and treat are people that have got a long-term addiction that have then developed depression anxiety you know or whatever alongside it because of their situation that they're in and their uh, inability to find their 
a way out of it, I guess. Yeah, I think that's probably leads on to the next question, which is around what are the challenges around people that have got a drink problem and a mental health issue? I think it's really difficult assessment because obviously when somebody is misusing substances or alcohol it's really difficult to um, assess their capacity because obviously it's influenced by being intoxicated um, and if and that's essentially what you're doing with within mental health is, is somebody's capacity to make decisions and and choices and is that affected by mental illness like illness driven or is it affected by alcohol and because the symptoms are so closely interlinked it's 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 a long assessment process rather than a very quick like oh, i'm going to see somebody for an hour and i can kind you can usually gauge what what's going on for them within an hour but somebody with that kind of complexity of alcohol misuse that process needs to be a long a long period like a long period of assessment to really find out what's going on at different points in the days is it not as difficult though to you know with in terms of capacity if someone's got capacity or not like even people with schizophrenia or other serious mental health you know is it not the same are they not you know difficult to kind of you know yeah it seems to me from experience that people with alcohol misuse don't get the help they need um because I, I, li- I mean, I've got some ideas as to why that is, but people with schizophrenia are more likely to be able to get support and help because it's just the mental health thing. But it doesn't mean to say, I think they're both complex in their own ways, obviously different, aren't they? But like you can have the same issue with schizophrenia, like with the capacity, surely. Yeah. And I guess that's the difference, isn't it, between alcohol misuse um, and kind of like mental illness is you can treat mental illness when somebody doesn't have capacity can't you you can use you know the mental health act mm-hmm. and the mental capacity act to treat somebody unfortunately alcohol misuse isn't recognized as a mental illness is it so there's no kind of forcible treatment that you can give somebody when they're lacking capacity and i think it's a really gray area for for people when you're you know some you're faced with somebody that's clearly really distressed and unhappy and you know quite often suicidal at their situation how do you support that person that's you know deemed you know to have capacity to make these unwise choices actually it's not an unwise choice is it it's an addiction and Mm. and so how do you judge how do you help someone that's schizophrenic that doesn't have capacity so that's what that's the mental health fact that's when it's used when somebody's a risk or a danger to themselves um or others um then the mental health act is used to protect them and others um, and to treat them um obviously i've I'm, I've, I've worked with many people with addiction in inpatient settings um, and done detoxes and stuff when i first qualified well, when I was doing my training a few years ago, we used to have detox beds in the wards. I don't know if you ever come across them or not. Uh, in West Dorset, we have we have quite a few detox beds, so we'd quite regularly have people come in and we detox them on the wards, and then they'd obviously go and have their treatment um, in the community. But that doesn't, obviously doesn't happen anymore, does it? No. Um, but that was obviously informal. Nobody was ever detained to have treatment for um, addiction. So, sorry for all the probing. <laughs> I'm just trying to get, you know. So, 
how I'm sort of hearing this as well with the sort of, let's say, the schizophrenia, the capacity and everything, that seems in its very simple terms, a paperwork exercise. Do you know what I mean? You've got some paperwork, you've got an act that you can make use of to treat this person because there's not that paperwork exercise. We're saying we can't, it's, we can't help these people that have got you know, alcohol misuse and mental health. That seems madness because we know it's possible to help these people because people in America do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> And you know, so I feel like sometimes the time and the resources and politics and all of that stuff get in the way of us actually doing good. Yeah, and I think, and I think that's quite what's quite frustrating for a lot of pe- you know people that partic- like work in mental health. I mean, when I was on um, in the community and I had a caseload, I had people um, that misused drugs uh, that had you know like their their illness, so they were treated and mentally stable but were using you know crack cocaine and and stuff like that on a regular basis which was impacting their behavior um and and their risk um but actually that kind of wasn't my role to treat that they weren't ready to engage with services um and that's quite tricky because you're a care coordinate for somebody you're looking after me you, you know that's your job but you you can only really do half of it mm. um and it's you know it's it's really frustrating and I, I particularly know when I was younger my my mum had a relationship with somebody who had paranoid schizophrenia and used to misuse drugs and alcohol and as the child living in that it was really really frustrating because oh, I had to witness all sorts of stuff going on that was really unpleasant but again he was being treated for this illness um, and all of this other stuff was going on. There wasn't any help. And the backlash of that was, you know, impacting uh, the children that lived in the house. So I think for me, it's more of a personal kind of, like, I want to help everything rather than my actual job role. And I think that's the bit that I have to remember sometimes. Do you know what I mean? It's more of a personal value rather than what, what I'm expecting today does that make sense so um i have a lot of clients that we um signpost to yourselves up at the retreat um when they're up there um sort of what is available for them at the drop-in yeah so for so much like you know like you probably know we are a signposting service that's what we do um we don't manage individual cases because we don't we just you know it's not something we have the capacity to do um so we would come in and we would put people in touch with ad action and you know smart and all of the services that are in dorset um and the role of us that i see is when people are coming and they're coming on a regular basis and they want to engage with us we have the the privilege of sowing those first seeds of motivational work essentially that pre-contemplation and contemplation stuff we can start having those conversations um and you know gently kind of supporting them to think of self-persuasion <laughs> rather than going right here's ad action you need to give them a call and that's it our job yeah. is more than that it's that you know that sowing those seeds essentially yeah. and also it's quite a nice safe environment from yeah. from what I've gathered and um also I think the times of it is brilliant because it's those times between like four and midnight where you know you can get a bit 
sketchy you can get a little bit you know if you're trying to cut down on your addiction those are the times when it can be quite rife so to find yourself in a safe place I think it's been really rewarding to the clients that I've had feedback from yeah and we actually have had a lot of people that you know come in and use the space for that purpose as somewhere else to be that is safe they don't necessarily want to have you know one-to-one chats with people and have that motivational work actually for them just working through their own stuff and knowing that they're contained is enough and and that's what we're for and yeah and that's what I love about it that we can be that service which is different from all the other mental health services that can offer people that opportunity and that space and um do you welcome in like say family and carers that uh um so they can come up and maybe just pick some advice up and things like that yeah so we quite often have people come in with their when they first come they often come with family i think one time we literally had one person and 10 people and we were like really sorry just a couple because it, you know we, yeah. <laughs> we have a, a number of people we can have in the building um but yeah that often happens people come with one or two three supporters um um they can either come in and have a chat they can have a chat on their own they can have support separately we can signpost them to carers stuff they can carers can come back without you know the visitor that's needed oh yeah that's great yeah it's it's like it is an open access service for anyone you don't have to have uh, a diagnosis of something yeah so what do you believe is the best treatment for um, people in with a dual diagnosis um, is it because obviously we're sort of told we, we, we help to cure the um, addiction before yeah. anything can happen but and I know I have a couple of clients myself who are very very lucky and us still got both of us you know they've got the mental health team and they've got us as well but I know that's very few and far between Hmm. Um, so kind of best practice for us in Dorset at the moment, Dorset wide, is that every team will have a drug and alcohol link worker. So, and obviously in our team, it's me. Um, and we all meet up on kind of two, three monthly, like for, for kind of hour and a half. And we discuss best practice and we discuss the challenges um, that we have and people that are perhaps, you know, difficult it's not a word I like but crops up difficult to kind of treat um and and that includes ad action and you know cmhts us um anybody that's in the community working and from that we kind of say the best treatment is us all working together to engage with somebody and people not being um you know, discharged or not allowed to access something because they've got that dual diagnosis. Um, and you know, and you look at all of the all of the literature to support that, and it just suggests that collaboration um, with all services. You know, whether or not that happens across the board, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but certainly when I go to those meetings, they are really positive. Yeah. Because sometimes they're just um, self-medicating, aren't they? Really yeah, trying to cope yeah. um, the best way they know how. And, um, you know, just looking for some detachment from what's going on in their heads at the moment at that time. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, so, you know, like alcohol isn't my expertise, I'll be honest. And what I am really passionate about is trauma and, and how people are treated for particularly complex trauma. And I think that, you know, if people have got a history of trauma, that that rejection 
when you're there asking for help is yeah. soul destroying for somebody. It isn't is it? exactly. Yeah. How do you how do you recover from that when you're already so you know traumatized by you know whatever's happened? How do yeah. you you know you, you turn up you you're you're going somewhere for support and you're you're putting your faith in somebody, which most people don't have, and then you get told no sorry you have yeah. to go and do that don't tick the box don't meet the criteria you know yeah which you know we have I have come across you know a couple of times um which mm-hmm. is really really unfortunate and you know we try to empathize with them and try to get them focused then on their recovery um mm-hmm. with the kind of thought of like in the future that we we can it can be, you know, dealt with, but let's yeah. just work on this little bit first and then we can sort of move up, move you on sort of thing. So. And I guess, and that's that again, why we, where we are so privileged really that we've got the opportunity to just be that limbo place for a bit. Yeah. Um, and like I said, and do that motivational stuff. Because again, if somebody's not quite ready to engage with you guys, then just get stuck in that vicious circle don't they so i know that we've spoken about um before uh, you know i went to this um conference and i chatted to this lady who works in one of the rehabs and you know they are holistically trained they're trained in mental health they're trained in alcohol misuse um and do we you know is is that lacking do you think in the uk have we not got enough of that um so that the people that are really struggling because i like paula i've had people that have come to me and been absolutely on their knees desperate for help and they've just got that rejection no we can't help you um and another guy he was so bad that physically that that particular rehab couldn't cope with his physical ailments um and and that rejection has really knocked him because he keeps talking about it um and you know the fact that these people are actually asking for help and are at that stage I feel like we are really failing them. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that specific to our immediate area, um, but obviously I don't know all the other areas in the UK, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think we're alone in this. No, I think the best, from my knowledge, the best place in the UK is actually Scotland. Right. Um, for dual diagnosis. They are, up, you know, they're, they're, they're above it all. They're, mm. they're on the ball. They're really great. And a lot of the kind of online training that I've done has come from Scotland um, mm. and it is available. Um, if people want to do it, it's quite easy to do. But I, I know here in Dorset, we have dual diagnosis training, which is a, uh, like a one day training for, for people that work in the community. And it's really good. It's really brilliant. It's run by somebody that works um, in mental health and somebody that works in ad action, I think. Um, and it's brilliant. And and you do it and you're like oh I actually know all of this stuff like I know all of, you know I know how to assess risk and I know that that motivation stuff and um and it, it's good to catch up with all what drugs are out there and alcohol and how people are using it and stuff like that um but I think the revisiting of it and the supervision within teams perhaps isn't what happens um Again, we're really fortunate because we have a debrief before we start. We talk about our successes and our challenges before our shift. We debrief throughout our shift and we debrief at the end. And then we have a team meeting every week to discuss any challenges and how we, as a team, can support each other to get a better understanding. And dual diagnosis comes up a lot for us, actually. Um, 
mostly because we accept referrals from emergency services, so paramedics and police, who aren't sure what to do with people that are drunk, so they just bring them to us. Um, so what does Scotland do so well? I, I guess it I guess it must be because they, the prevalence up there is so much higher, isn't it? Um, so they've just got, I haven't done it for a while, but they've got loads of online training that right. um, unpicks it all. I should probably have had a look at it, to be honest. Um, I've got it somewhere. I think now. it's just, you know, I think, you know, from again, from discussions we've had, like sometimes it can be uh, the staff that feel uncomfortable coping and dealing with that person. So it's not that the person can't be helped because we've got evidence to prove that people can be treated with dual diagnosis and they can be helped that, you know, I don't think that's a question. It seems to be that if the staff don't feel confident in themselves, don't feel safe, don't feel educated enough, trained enough, that's what's then becomes a bit limiting in terms of the support that people can get. And again, it all seems to come back to money and resources and time and all of that kind of stuff. Do you think that's yeah, the case? So, I mean, yeah. So I think um, I think certainly in our in our job, um, the nature of our service, if people. And we've seen this, we've let people in that um, have, have been intoxicated and it completely changes the kind of the, the atmosphere in the, you know, like the social space. Um, because we've, we've, you know, taken on board that they've, oh, they've had one or two drinks today and they, they, they want to engage. And actually it turns out they've had a lot more and they're not in the right headspace. And that's detrimental for everybody else that uses the service. So that's one of our, our, biggest kind of issues that we need to figure out how do we how do we kind of make that assessment when somebody comes up about you know one or two drinks for somebody might be a lot mine it but actually yeah odd curve for somebody else yeah then it's not you know it's functioning isn't it so and i think there's different treatment that can be offered to people depending on where they're at i mean obviously no one would expect a mental health worker to do anything of any depth or anything when somebody is off their head you know no one's saying that but sometimes I think we're like sort of putting out this generic sort of oh we can't help people if they're drunk blah 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 well no of course you can't do anything you know if someone's not with it but we have people in our groups and I've worked with people that that I can have a conversation with just like you and I are they still got dual diagnosis they're not drunk at that point they're not you know so off their face that you couldn't do some useful stuff with them whether that's just listening or whatever but obviously when someone comes in and they're drunk then yeah definitely you know you got to just try and manage that unfortunately i think it's those experiences of those people that are really intoxicated that do create kind of you know in serious incidents that then taints the experience for people that aren't yeah um, and then people's tolerance is lowered and it's yeah. what um what's important in our, in our role is to revisit that tolerance and so to be actually these experiences have happened but when people are coming to the door and, and they're saying that they're alcohol dependent are we making a judgment based on what is yeah. in front of us or are we making a judgment based on our own anxieties because yeah. of incidents that have occurred in the past yeah. and and that and i think that's the tricky bit isn't it yeah. people have and they go oh my god it was you know it was awful all of this stuff happened and we couldn't contain it and it had a ripple effect and then people get missed because of unfortunate incidents that probably could have been prevented 
Yeah, so I, I guess it's trying not to tile everyone with the same brush and to think that yeah. just because someone comes in and says they've got an alcohol problem doesn't necessarily mean you can't help them. But obviously, if someone's turning up drunk, like, you know, as we know, we have to assess somebody based on what's presented with us at the front, you know, in, you know, in front of us. Um, but I think sometimes those people like the people I have been able to work with you know if they had some support during the day or like they come to my group for an hour you know another hour would keep them occupied a, a conversation with someone around their mental health would be really useful I would imagine and they're not at the stage you're talking about you know turning up in that sort of state so I think yeah. there's a real sort of mix obviously um but I think sometimes we can yeah maybe overreact about it um, oh, definitely. definitely I think that's <laughs> Yeah. It's that over, isn't it? And we're all, you know, we've all got our own triggers, haven't we? You know, there'll be stuff, you know, that's a bit too close to home for me, and I'll go, God, I'm going to really struggle with that. But it's that self awareness and recognition of it, isn't it? And actually knowing that it's being driven by whatever's going on for you rather than the person, the, the very important individual person that stood in front of you. So. Um, I have a little question for you that's just cropped up. Um, Say you've got a client that you can see is um, clearly um, showing signs of uh, autism, Asperger's, misreading situations, getting themselves in trouble, um, but they're not actually aware of it. How would um, you direct someone to sort of seek maybe... um, an evaluation or you know um where would you send them to i mean would you refer them to their doctors would you refer them to the mental health yeah because we're already secondary mental health we can um directly refer straight into the cmhts okay and they would then do an assessment and um yeah 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 because um i've come across a few in the past and because they couldn't read the situation, they didn't. They misinterpreted something that said, and um, only because I know these things because my son's autistic, that yeah. I pick up on it really yeah. quickly. Um, and I just think sometimes they've just, you know, they've slipped through the, they've slipped through the net, as it were. Um, and the reason they're in a situation that they're in is just purely because they've misunderstood something they've you know someone might have looked at them and they've misinterpreted it someone might have said something and they've taken it the wrong way um Mm. but these situations have led people to end up being in prison um um, you know um oh what do you call it when the uh in you know they've been restrained in a mental health facility yeah yeah that's it sorry um you know and i can just see that it's just been a miss a misunderstanding of everything and um you know i'd really like to know because obviously they're not aware of it and they've just been bumbling through life um situation after situation traumas incidences and um they're not they won't know how to access that because they're not even aware of it themselves. Yeah. So you so, say the best thing to do. I mean, is that something I could do as a professional um, to highlight a person or is yeah, that something yeah. they'd have to do on their own? 
Um, so, so we kind of work on the basis of people just, they come to us like because they want to um, which is why we work so well because people want to engage with us but part of that engagement process is that we actually are honest with people and we actually go do you know what I think this is what's going on for you my medical recommendation would be that you go and seek support from this service to find out if you know for example if you know that, that you're on the spectrum and I would just have that honest conversation with somebody really yeah that's, you know, but yeah. again, something that depends on your experience. I mean, I worked with autistic adults for 10 years before I trained to become a nurse. So for me, it's like you say, it's quite easy to recognize those symptoms, isn't it? And kind of go, yeah. Yeah, this isn't quite, this isn't quite, you know, quite right somewhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. So are you saying I, I could highlight that to a member of your team or something? Yeah. Yeah. If so I came we have a... someone. Yeah, so essentially the idea of us, us is we want to work with everybody yeah. as much as possible. Don't miss out on anything. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um, also, <laughs> I've got a question for you. Um, <laughs> um, so how do you think society as a whole help or are unhelpful in terms of things like dual diagnosis, mental health issues and alcohol issues and stuff? What do you think? you know society do in terms of that i think out of you know people are really quite brilliant with mental health now but i think the stigma attached to alcoholism no. is the one that hasn't quite been cracked yet yeah no and i think it's really unhelpful because mm. people just can't go you know that, well, they chose that mm. you know they, they decide to have the drink or use the drugs mm. or mm. you know and, and i think the understanding um you know isn't isn't there is it it's kind of it's missed and yeah. you know people choose this do they they don't choose this no. funnily enough i did a video about this yesterday about choice and stuff um explaining like initially it is yeah someone picks up a drink of course they do but not when it gets to dependent stage um and i think that that message is still not quite clear <laughs> and i don't think social media and the press and tv and all of that really have a good understanding of the link between mental health and alcohol misuse at all i mean most of the people i've met like you've talked about trauma most of the people i've met have experienced some level of trauma if they've become dependent obviously that's a generalized statement and it's not effect, you know it's not everybody but a lot of them have had some sort of trauma um well, I and it's understanding that that is their coping strategy you know we've all got coping strategies you know we, we can all think that our coping strategy is better than somebody else's and we're we're kind of a better person because of it um but actually we're just all flawed human beings that are finding our way to get through life and you know yes of course i'm not denying that drug and alcohol misuse is probably more damaging than um, a lot of other things that people might choose to cope but yeah. they you know most you know if you're overeating it's affecting your health if you're gambling yeah. it's affecting your finances if you're I don't know shopping too much it's affecting your finances and, and potentially relationships and you know we there's knock-on effects with, with most things isn't there yeah yeah I mean I, I don't really know I don't know what the answer is to it I guess that the hope is that one day mm. there's a enough kind of um money put into the you know like the time to talk and all the mental health yeah. 
goes on now that eventually that you know alcoholism will, will fall under that umbrella as well won't it and, yeah well, hopefully, I mean, the mental health side of things has just gone up, come on in leaps and bounds, hasn't it, yeah. over the past few years? And if we can, you know, bring in the addiction side of it, you know, there will be more understanding because it just it's just so frustrating that, you know, it is one of those things, well, just don't drink, you know, or just don't use. It's beyond that. And if people could just understand that it's, you know, it's a disease it's an illness do you know what i mean it's, it's more than just stop drinking um you know and it is under mental health do you know what i mean and and also it can accelerate anything that's going on you know and and like we say with trauma nine times out of ten there's something there you know yeah. so it does come under the umbrella we just need to push it in a little bit more <laughs> And I guess, you know, by having perhaps one link worker in each mental health team that is passionate about making sure that best practice happens um, is a start, isn't it? And, you know, hopefully other people can kind of feel, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I lost my chain of thought. Um, <laughs> encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> To reconsider their own views, I guess, um, yeah. by that other person that's having that conversation and challenge their own views and challenge their um, perceptions of how they interact with people. And I think essentially, you know, what we try and do is, you know, even if you can't help somebody and somebody can't access your service that day because they're too intoxicated, doesn't mean you can't have a conversation with them that you know you're still human and you still talk to them on exactly we can't help you right now but if you can abstain from alcohol for a few hours before you come tomorrow then we can have a you know a chat about how you move forward yes. and that's just showing care and kindness isn't it yeah, definitely. it doesn't have to be a, you know that rejection that's really no sorry we can't help you yeah and I think that that's kind of how they feel I think a lot of the people that we've spoken to you know that have got both mental health you know problems and drink problems that they do feel like that they do feel rejected they do feel like they can't get the help that they need and you know that really needs to change sooner rather than later um, because people end up taking their own lives because they just can't cope and you know it's so sad I mean there's obviously lots of complexity around it but actually sometimes I think we need to simplify it and just realize like you say these are people that have got feelings and emotions and people that are struggling and we don't have to overcomplicate that we can just reach out and talk to them and be present and give them space yeah and that's what and you know and that's why I work in the service that I do because that's what I'm passionate about is giving people that space to actually have control over, you know, where do I go from here? You know, like, what are my options? How do I get support? Whether it be through the NHS or, you know, somewhere else. Yeah. I help people explore whatever works for them mm. rather than going, you know, this is what these guidelines say you should do this and, you yeah. know, you that you know one size doesn't fit all does it so and it's a bit like addiction addiction doesn't happen to everyone mental health doesn't happen to everyone what? you know diabetes doesn't happen to everyone you know mm. and if unfortunately you're dealt a card um that you know that is part of your life um they're only human and they want they want answers and they want to to find ways to move on you know they don't ask to be bipolar mm. it's something mm. that they 
kid that unfortunately is in their makeup. Um, mm -hmm. And the more people understand that, that it's not a choice, it's just been what you've dealt with and they're trying to manage in the best way that they can. Yeah, and I think it's, 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 it's installing that self-belief, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, you know, you, 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 you can move away from this. Yeah. And again, offering like the, the family a space to vent, you know, support for them. Like, how do we manage this? What's our role in it? You know, because often they're yeah. caring. 24 7 for people aren't they that yeah and it does take its toll you know yeah. everyone has a bit of a breaking point as well where they need to be able to step back and take a breath themselves because you know even with my son there's been times where the days are so repetitive that actually I thought I was going a bit bonkers yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean because everything is so routine based um, maybe there's places we could and couldn't go and it's very very draining as a carer but also you know you're doing what's best for them at the end of the day yeah yeah and I mean you know and the conversations I have with people when you know just as a just as a parent or as a carer for somebody you know even if they don't have you know mental health or addiction it's tough anyway you know yeah, yeah. Even with my little people it's tough being dependent on you it's yeah. a really exhausting thing isn't it so throw everything else in the mix on top of that yeah. you know it's yeah. not something it's, like it's ah. tough going <laughs> so i think we've kind of come to the end of our our interview and I think for me it, there's definitely more work to do obviously um, for me it's much more about focusing on the individual and making sure that we can you know I want people to have choice I don't want them to this is the only option you've got um, so that's what you've got to take I, I'd love for it to be a place where we've got some choices for people and that they can choose which treatment that they want and what suits them the best and that we work more holistically and we're more collaborative with different services to yeah. with the very best support to the person that needs it. So, I mean, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really interesting interview and I think that hopefully lots of people are going to get a lot from this and have a better understanding yeah. around your diagnosis and the complexities of, of it. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not, it's, I'm, it's not my expertise, alcohol, but I am, you know, interested and I'd like to advocate <laughs> as much as possible um, for people that don't get the help that they need, really. So, no. it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.